Hello, I'm Mike Lindell, inventor of my pillow, here to tell you about my Giza Dream bed sheets. I made sure that they would be everything you'd ever want in a sheet set. I started with the world's finest cotton called Giza. It's only grown in a region where the Sahara Desert, the Nile River, and the Mediterranean Sea all meet. The long staple cotton makes my Giza Dream sheets ultra soft and durable. They come with extra wide pillowcases to fit over any pillow and extra deep pockets to fit over any mattress. Not only that, they come with my 60-day money-back guarantee and a 10-year warranty. And now you can get the best sheets ever for the best price ever. When you buy one of my Giza Dream bed sheet sets, you'll get another one absolutely free. I personally guarantee that they'll be the most comfortable sheets you'll ever own. Go to MyPillow.com and click on the Radio Listener Specials for the buy one, get one free offer on Giza Sheets. All you got to do, Renegade Nation, is enter the promo code RENEGADE or call 1-800-889-6817 for these great specials. That's 1-800-889-6817. Use the promo code RENEGADE. Please be aware, the stories, theories, reenactments, and language in this podcast are of an adult nature and can be considered disturbing, frightening, and in some cases even offensive. Listener discretion is therefore advised. Welcome, heathens. Welcome to the world of the weird and unexplained. I am your host, Nicole Delacroix, and together we will be investigating stories about the things that go bump in the night, frighteningly imagined creatures, supernatural beings, and even some unsolved mysteries, but all sorts of weirdness. So, sit back, grab your favorite drink, and prepare to be transported to today's dark enigma. And on today's Dark Enigma, well, I got another listener suggestion. And seriously, you guys are killing it with the suggestions because this one intrigued me too. So, yay! So, with that said, we will still be playing our drinking game. And as you know, the drinking game is only for those of us that are at home and have nowhere else to go tonight. The choice of libation, my darlings, is always yours. So, pick your poison accordingly, my darlings. All right, now for the game part. How about every time I say Antarctica or South Pole? That will be a single shot. And every time I say Mysterious, that's going to be a double shot. All right, the business end is out of the way. And we can jump headfirst into today's Dark Enigma. So, warning, bring your heaviest winter coat and cozy up to that fireplace because today's story is cold. Arctic cold. Well, technically Antarctic cold. But we will dive into a mysterious death at the bottom of the world. Mysterious deaths are already infused with an innate sense of intrigue and are often surrounded by perplexing clues. But this can be even more so when they occur in faraway, remote, and exotic locations. And perhaps no place else would fit that description more than the very edge of the world itself, Antarctica. 
It was here at an isolated research facility located in the middle of a vast frozen wasteland and deep within a six-month-long night, far from any help and the reach of civilization, that a tight-knit group of researchers operating in unimaginably harsh conditions were shaken by the mysterious death of one of their own. It's an enigmatic case from the far fringes of very the very bottom of the world that has managed to intrigue and baffle to this very day, and which has become one of the biggest mysteries of the South Pole. There are few places on this planet that is as harsh, remote, and unforgiving as the bleak wastelands of Antarctica. Here, roaring, withering winds of lethal, biting cold relentlessly prowl across the dry, frozen earth of a landscape that sees six-month-long days, followed by the coming of a six-month-long night, during which this land of eternal cold is bathed in a perpetual night. During these long months of unrelenting darkness, the already freezing temperatures plunge even further to down to below an incredible negative 73 degrees Celsius or minus 99 degree Fahrenheit. I want you guys to think about this because I know some of you guys are up north and you're dealing with snow. You don't got snow like this. I'm just saying. And the brutally cold winds are joined by the inexorable coming of lumbering, ravenous blizzards that batter their domain. This is a barren and harsh place that seems fine-tuned to repel life. A place just as lifeless and inhospitable as the moon is. For many, the South Pole may seem, seem a forsaken place in which we were never meant to be. And you know what? Perhaps it is. But nestled within this alien realm sits perhaps the most isolated, continuously inhabited place on Earth, the Amundsen-Scott South Pole Station. It's located on a high plateau tucked away well inland and practically right at the center of the continent, sitting just 330 feet away from the geographic South Pole. Erected by the United States in 1956 and named after the famous Antarctic explorers Roald Amundsen and Robert F. Scott, the station was originally meant to be a constantly manned project committed to the serious scientific study of the geophysics of the South Pole, which had, until then, been so treacherous that there had never before been a permanent settlement there with even the very few temporary expeditions that had braved this harsh world located along the comparatively more inviting coast of Antarctica. The Amundsen-Scott South Pole Station, now operated by the U.S. National Science Foundation and U.S. contractor Raytheon Polar Services, has since been constantly upgraded and expanded its functions branching out into other areas of science, and although its population fluctuates, it remains the most southern, continuously occupied place on Earth, as well as perhaps the most hostile and the loneliest. 
It was in this moonscape of cold, stinging winds in the middle of one of its relentless winters of never-ending bitter nights that in 2000, a group of 49 scientists, engineers, and other personnel were overwintering at the base camp. Here in the dark and the gnawing cold, this team worked on their various endeavors in extreme isolation from the rest of the world just about as far from civilization as one can get. And with no way to get in or out, because the temperatures are so low that they will freeze a plane's hydraulic fluid solid. One of these brave souls was a 32-year-old Australian astrophysicist by the name of Rodney Marks, who was employed by the Smithsonian Astrophysical Observatory to work on the Antarctic Submillimeter Telescope and Remote Observation, a research project for the University of Chicago, and for which the conditions of the Antarctic night were just perfect. Described as brilliant by his colleagues and having been involved with numerous fellowships and research positions in his own home country, Marx specialized in radio astronomy and spent most of his times at the station working on collecting data for how to improve viewing conditions for the giant infrared telescope located there. Marx was widely respected by others at the station and was known for being friendly, witty, and approachable, as well as mingling with everyone, including the laborers such as carpenters and plumbers, unusual amongst the mostly very clicky teams. Although the extreme weather, endless night, and claustrophobic, lonely conditions made the station a rather difficult and emotionally taxing place to be, Marx was considered most happy with his work and had the added benefit of having his wife, a maintenance specialist by the name of Sonia Walter, with him. However, things were about to take a very tragic and mysterious turn for the young scientists. On May 11, 2000, the normally very healthy and physically fit Marx was trudging through the biting cold from the observatory back to the base when he suddenly felt dizzy and had severe stomach pains. The medical staff at the station examined him, but could not ascertain just what could be wrong with him, and of course, more well-equipped medical facilities were so far away and inaccessible that they might as well have been on another planet. Over the next 36 hours, Marx's health would inexplicably and rapidly deteriorate, as he was besieged by dizzy spells, extreme sensitivity to light, headaches, chest pains, joint pains, disorientation, and shortness of breath. During the night, he woke up and began vomiting blood, which deeply upset his wife. Despite several visits to the medical ward, Robert Thompson, the station's doctor, could not figure out what was wrong with him, and attempts to use the satellite phone to ask for advice from the outside world was thwarted by equipment malfunctions. Despite desperate efforts to try and control his symptoms, Mark's condition continued to decline until, on May the 12th, he was dead. His mysterious condition remained undiagnosed and the cause of death completely unknown, although it was assumed at the time that he had died of a heart attack or aneurysm. 
Considering the brutal conditions outside and the fact that it would be impossible for anyone to fly to the base, there was not much that was, that the remaining team could do with Marx's body other than put it into cold storage, and there it would remain until October when the weather was comparatively more amicable. The body was then flown over to Christchurch, New Zealand, where findings would be made that would propel the death of Rodney Marx further into mystery. Coroners discovered that the cause of death had been the ingestion of lethal amounts of methanol, a wood-based alcohol chemical commonly used at the station to clean sensitive scientific equipment. But this did little to dispel the shadow of mystery hanging over the case, since it could not be figured out how he could have ingested so much methanol, which was about 150 milliliters, or about a small wine glass worth, in the first place. The first theory was that Marx had committed suicide, but this was quickly shot down by others at the station, including his wife, who were adamant that he was a well-adjusted individual, happy with his work and looking forward to his future. Additionally, he had never shown suicidal intent and was in the midst of important research he had been determined to finish. There was also the fact that he had immediately gone to the base doctor when he started feeling sick, which would have been a strange thing to do if he was really trying to kill himself. Investigators agreed that suicide was highly unlikely and dropped it as a possible reason. Another idea that they had was that he might have drunk the methanol in order to get high or as part of a sort of moonshine. But this would be strange as the base was well stocked with alcohol of all kinds. Because, you know, if you're going to go to the bottom of the earth, you better have some good booze. I'm just saying. Indeed, one of the favorite pastimes at the station was drinking. And almost everyone there drank alcohol in their spare time in the absence of much else to do. Making the station bar one of the most popular places there. On top of this, although Marx was a binge drinker as well, he was not known to use any other drugs. And although there were found to be three mysterious needle marks on his arm when he died, no signs of other drugs were found in his system at the time. In the end, it seemed out of character that he would that he would drink methanol of all things in order to get wasted, especially since he knew very well how dangerous such a thing could be. That led the idea that he had ingested the methanol without knowing it. But if that were the case, then how had that happened. It could have been a simple mistake, as by all accounts, Marx's workplace was usually disorganized and in disarray, so it was theorized that there could have been bottles of both methanol lying around along with bottles of booze, making it possible that he had been under the influence of alcohol and accidentally taken a swig from the wrong bottle. But this has been seen as unlikely, as Marx knew very well how dangerous methanol was and had typically kept it locked away and clearly marked. It is seen as improbable that such a careful scientist would have had such a potentially deadly chemical just lying around out in the open. It was also suggested that it might have been a bad batch of moonshine, which was known to be on the base, but later analysis of the moonshine available showed no traces of methanol in it at all. This left the sinister possibility that Marx had been intentionally poisoned by someone else on the base, perhaps by spiking his drink with the methanol, either to kill him or as a prank to make him ill. 
This would be the theory that the media would latch onto, and it didn't take long before the case was being called the South Pole's first murder, and other equally provocative headlines. The public, of course, ate this up, as it had the perfect balance of mystery, intrigue, and a remote exotic location that few knew anything about. In the meantime, though, New Zealand authorities looked into this possibility, but there was no clear motive for anyone having wanting to kill Marx. He seemed to be well-liked by all, and there was little to gain by killing him. Although murder wasn't ruled out completely, this led investigators speculating that perhaps someone may have slipped it into his drink unknowingly, and one detective on the case said of this, and I quote, I've gone over it many times in my mind. He was too smart to drink it knowingly. If anything, maybe someone else didn't know the difference between methanol and ethanol and put the wrong thing in his drink saying, here, drink this, it'll give you a good buzz. I always come back to the idea he was slipped it and maybe the person didn't even know it. End quote. If someone had killed Marx though, then it was very difficult to track down who it could have been. Not only were the National Science Foundation and Rathion very uncooperative in releasing contact details for the staff of the base during the winter of 2000, but even when they were found and sent questionnaires, very few responses actually came back. Out of the 49 sent out, only 13 replies came back, which is nowhere near enough to get an idea of if there is any possible suspects for murder. If Marx had been killed, then his murderer would likely never be found. The whole mystery was further confounded by a series of hurdles standing in the way of trying to figure out just what had happened. First of all, by the time the body was examined, the crime scene itself was contaminated beyond all hope of gleaning any clues. Marx's body had been sitting on ice in the frigid night for six months, and in that time there had been no efforts made to cordon off his living quarters or office, despite an apparent request by Raytheon to do so, mostly because it was believed by the station crew that Marx had died of a heart attack or other natural causes, and also because it was simply not practical to close these areas down in a place where space was at a premium. Since there had been no reason to suspect murder at the time of death, these spaces were cleaned out and continued to be used normally, erasing any possible useful evidence. There were also incomplete medical records kept on Mark's condition at the time, and indeed it was very hard to conduct a proper investigation in the first place, considering the remote location where the death had happened. Adding to all of this frustration was the clash of jurisdiction claims made by the U.S. and New Zealand governments, as the issue in Antarctica is complicated to say the very least, possibly as a result of this. There was little cooperation from the United States National Science Foundation and Raytheon during the investigation. Detective Senior Sergeant Grant Warmald of the New Zealand Police who was in charge of the investigation, made several formal requests for contact information on the crew of the station, as well as any potentially useful information concerning the base and any lab test data. But responses were frustratingly slow, if they came at all. In the end, Warmald was far from convinced that he was being told everything that was known about the case, 
or that the science, the National Science Foundation and Raytheon were sharing all pertinent information. Saying of this general uncooperativeness, he stated, and I quote, We wanted the results of the National Science Foundation internal investigation and to get in contact with people who were there to ask them some questions. They weren't prepared to tell us who, they, who was actually there. They have advised that no report exists. To be frank, I think there is more there. There must be. Despite numerous requests, I'm not entirely satisfied that all relevant information and reports have been disclosed to the New Zealand police or the coroner. I suspect that there have been people who have thought twice about making contact with us on the basis of their future employment position. End quote. Indeed, the National Science Foundation has never released the results of its own investigation into the matter. This persistent lack of cooperation, as well as myriad legal, diplomatic, and jurisdictional hurdles, are all factors contributing to the fact that the coroner's investigation took a full six years before it was officially made, which is seen as, as an oddly long time. Considering how tight-lipped the organizations that run the base have been, the whole investigation has hit dead end after dead end. And this has certainly stirred up whispers of conspiracy and a cover-up, with rumors that Marx had possibly found something out there on the ice that he was not supposed to see and had been silenced for it. This idea has been further supported by the fact that when Marx died, there had been a machine to test blood chemistry called an ectochem present at the medical facility, but had not been used supposedly because it had not been working for reasons that remain, well, murky, possibly because it was not properly calibrated due to a battery failure, according to Raytheon. However, when attempts were then made to contact the one who could answer that question, the doctor at the time, Robert Thompson, he could not be located. The machine, had it been used, would have likely saved Marx's life. So, what happened to Rodney Marx? How did that methanol get into his system, and why have the relevant organizations been so tight-lipped and unwilling to talk about the whole incident? Was this merely an accident, and if so, well, how did it happen? Did this intelligent scientist, who knew exactly how dangerous methanol was to drink, actually drink it intentionally for some strange reason? Or was he killed? And if this was murder, then why is it carried out? And was it perpetrated by a base employee or by the company itself? Is there some sort of cover-up or conspiracy going on here? As things are, the death of Rodney Marks has remained unsolved and probably will never be solved. The personnel that were there at the time cannot all be found, and any potential evidence is long gone. And very little information has been shared by those who actually run the station. There seems to be little interest by those who run the station to uncover any more answers, and no one has been investigated for any culpability in this case, leaving DSS Warmald to lament, and I quote, I'd like to think that if my children went to work down there and something went wrong, someone would be responsible for finding out what happened. I know Rodney's family wants to know why the machinery that would have diagnosed his illness wasn't working, and whether anyone will actually be held accountable, whether anyone even gives a shit. Someone should be required to give a damn. After so long, it's probably impossible to ever know what happened, and if he died by sinister means or by accident, 
That's something that we all have to live with, end quote. The answers might forever remain buried out there in that cold wasteland of Antarctica. The truth just as cast into darkness as that station was in the midst of its long winter night. Whatever happened to Marx has become one of the most enduring and elusive mysteries of the South Pole, and it looks as if this case will forever be just as impenetrable and little understood as Antarctica itself. It is said that the unique people who work here on the edge of the world at the Amundsen-Scott South Pole Station have this saying, what happens on the ice stays on the ice. It seems that in the case of Rodney Marx's mysterious death, this will hold true, and probably always will. And with that, my darlings, we've come to the end of our episode. I thank you for joining me here today, and I hope you'll take some time to reach out to me and maybe share your thoughts on what you think happened. You can always reach me and the show at darkenigmapodcast at gmail.com. And if you have a suggestion for a future show, you just want to tell me what you think, you want to have a chat, you're bored, drop me a line because I do reply to every single email. And on that note, my darlings, that's all the time I have for you this evening. I thank you for joining me here on Renegade Talk Radio. And you guessed it, don't forget to tune in next time. See you, my heathens. I love you. We don't sugarcoat shit. This is Renegade Talk Radio. Renegade Talk Radio.